The world is falling apart. America, in particular, is disintegrating. We're divided. We've lost our way. People are taking advantage of each other. People are taking advantage of the system. Lying is more common than the truth. We may never return to our former selves. That is a story. That is a narrative. That story gets clicks, and it gets likes, and it gets donations. And it's coming from people who write it. It's created. A narrative is created. There are people authoring this thing. People are telling that story. And it's not people telling it from one particular place. It isn't a party line or a regional line or a religious line. It's a story that's coming at us from all over the place. And in fact, it's coming at us from so many places that when I started saying it, you were, none of you were like, what? Right? None of you were like, what's he talking about? I have no idea. Things are great. Even if, even if you were cringy, and I hope you were really cringy, even if you were cringing about that I was saying things like that and maybe that I was going to get really political, even if that was what was happening inside you, you weren't saying, well, where's this coming from? You know that story because that story is being told to you over and over and over and over. And again, I want to emphasize, people are writing that story. That's a story that's a narrative that is being authored. So we are in week four of a series that's called, Is It Worth It? Is it worth it anymore? This is a question that people are asking more and more, this is, a people, this is a question that people have been asking for a long time. Is it worth it? Is faith worth it? Is reading the Bible worth it? Is following the, the, the path of Jesus worth it? Is going to church worth it? And of course, in this series, we've been answering that question, yes. So today I'm going to stick with that. Um, I was joking that I would get up and just say no and then walk away and then... <laughs> I'll stick with the yes answer, um, but, and so today I'm going to be bringing what I think is worth it, why I think it's worth it, is that it, it, it's a story that can bring joy and bring peace. It's an antidote for anger and fear. So back to my storyline, the things are all falling apart, right? The things are just terrible. The world is, the world is in, a, in a worse shape than it's ever been in. Sociologists and historians and psychologists have a name for that story. That story actually has a name, right? That's part of what tells you it's being written. It has a title. That story has a name, and that name is declinism. I didn't say historians were that uh, creative. Declinism. Declinism is just this, this, this thing that's been happening. It's been happening forever, for centuries. People have been thinking that society was going to the, to the dogs, that society was falling apart. In fact, one historian said, Cultural decline is American as apple pie. And he didn't mean that actual decline is as American as apple pie. He means our thinking that America is declining is as American as apple pie. Us fearing that America is about to fall off the edge is something that we've been doing for a long time. It's something we've been doing um, since the days we were founded. We just all kind of always have this fear. And right now we're in what some historians are calling the fifth major wave, not of the, of, the, of the whatever, coronavirus, but of declinism. We're in the fifth major wave of declinism. 
Isn't that interesting? I mean, doesn't that just put some perspective to it for you? That this is a, this is a story that people are writing about and people are studying about. Now, here's the insidious part. Once your brain hears this story enough times, and once your biases start to churn and, and reinforce that story, you start to think that this story is reality. You start to think that this story is the entirety of reality. You start to think that anything beyond that story, like may, maybe say God's actual story, is a subchapter of that story. And then you start to become a narrator. You start to become an author of the story itself. That, that's, that's where things then start taking a harder turn. So I want to say also, regardless, if declinism is not your story, like if that, you're like, no, that's not where I am. But if regardless of declinism is your story or not, the truth is, the truth is that most of us live in a story of our own creation. Most of us, most of the time, live in a story of our own creation. Most of us spend most of our days interpreting all the inputs based on a storyline that we have authored. So, for instance, she is a blank. That's why she said that, because it fits in exactly with who she is, right? He is a blank, which is why he did that, because it fits in exactly with who he is. These are stories that we make. And then almost every stimulus that enters our brains is interpreted and cataloged and stored as reinforcing data to those stories that we've created, it's super funny, actually, when you look at it from the outside, if you could, which you can't, right? But if you could look at your mind from the outside, it's hilarious to think that you're right so often, right? I mean, you are, you're so perfect. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly why the person said what they said. You know exactly why the person did what they did. Even though you yourself are a very complex being who, who, who does things for a very large number of reasons that you don't even understand, but you completely understand exactly why they did what they did, right? It's hilarious. Almost nothing goes outside of your models when it's coming in from the outside. Your brain will do, make sure that it cannot there's so many types of biases that your brain is just going to deal with that offending information. It's either going to ignore it or it's going to change it or it's just going to store it in a different way so that it fits with your model. Okay, here's my premise. These stories that we make, that people make, the stories that you and I create, the stories that we get from the air are usually, are often negative stories. They're filled with a lot of negativity. When we get stories from each other, when we get stories from the air around us, from the spirit of the time, there's a lot of negativity in those stories. I think that's one thing Paul was thinking about when he was, when he was writing this in Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins which, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And this is my favorite thing. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's just such a great word picture in my mind. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. You were just like that when you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. When you got sucked into those stories. At the end of this verse he says, You also lived like that when you gratified the cra cravings of the flesh and followed its desires 
and thoughts. And thoughts. You are following the thoughts of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And those thoughts, those stories, have a lot of cynicism baked into them and a lot of anger baked into them. A lot of fear baked into them. Right? And, you know, it was uh, almost exactly a year ago, if you were here, I'm teaching very similar outlines. So you're going to be like, if you have your notes, in fact, one person in a previous um, thing said, I got out my phone to take notes and I already had the notes. That's awesome. Uh, there was a different theme around it, but the verses are very similar. The idea is very similar. Anyway, so this next verse from Galatians, I think Paul was thinking the same thing when he said, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And the, the punctuation is interesting here. I don't know how this works, going from Greek to English, but the punctuation is interesting. Works of the flesh are obvious, colon, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, semicolon. So now we had like these things that you can do to be sinful, and now we're going to get into things that are in your head, emotions and that kind of thing, right? The works, so I'm going to skip what's between the colon and the semicolon. The acts of the flesh are obvious, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. <laughs> They're obvious, the works of the flesh are obvious. Following the kingdom, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is obvious. When you start to have hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, it's obvious what's happening to you. And those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> harsh, harsh, hard words, right? Jesus, on the other hand, told a different story. He did not tell a, a story of declinism. When Jesus was on the world, in fact, let's just put our heads in this space. When Jesus is on the, on the earth, the, the, the world's kind of a mess, right? Things are kind of, a, kind of a mess. And in fact, as I was thinking about it, you could like throw a dart at the world anytime you want to pick, sort of any place you want to pick, and the world's kind of a mess when you get there. When, when Jesus arrives Right? We're in a time where, where people are ruling by violence. Where if you wanted to take over a kingdom, if you wanted to have, it's violence that, 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 that rules the day. Violence is what shows what's powerful. It's, there's ironic because he comes into, Jesus is born into a time called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it's just funny, it's like tongue in cheek, peace, ha ha ha. Because there's peace because they killed you. <laughs> yeah, right, you're peaceful now, aren't you? Right? So, please laugh at that, yes. I mean, it was, it was from a historical perspective, there was a time where there was fewer wars and that, but it was because Rome ruled so powerfully. So if, you, if there was any hint of dissension, boom, they were going to come in very powerfully with a lot of force. Jesus is born into a city, into a culture where, where they're under occupation, right? They're under a, a military occupation is when he's born. People, there's soldiers around that he sees, and Jesus tells this story when he's talking to his disciples. At the end of John, he has this very long uh, discussion with his disciples. In two places, he says, why I'm doing this. One is in John 15, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. And I'm going to skip to 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. And it, my joy may be complete. Your joy may be complete. That's the story Jesus is telling. I'm here because I think my joy can be in you and that your joy can be complete. 
That's a very different story than anger and, and dissensions. And then a, a, a chapter later, he says similar th- kind of thing where he says, I'm telling you this so, I have told you this so, that you might have peace. I'm saying this so that you might have peace. That your soul might have peace. That song we just sang, we said, you know, why are you so upset? I, I wrote it down on the top of my first notes so I could know the words exactly. Sorry, I didn't lick my fingers. Why should my heart grow weary? Don't be downcast, oh my soul. I told you this so you could have peace. Why are you downcast? Okay, uh, I'm lost because I did that. <laughs> so this is the story Jesus is telling is that we can have peace. We can have joy. So I don't want to change your mind about modern society and where we're, where we're going, where we might be heading, what we might, because I can't, right? I can't do that. Because your biases, your mind is going to change whatever I say anyway. Your story is going to be complete. But I do want to tell you, I want to point out two things. One is, most people... At most points in history, and most people living now would trade places with you in a heartbeat. Like, this would not be a hard question for them. Would you rather live in 21st century America? Yeah! Right? Okay? We're living in unimaginable times. Hunger is down. Crime is down. Poverty is down. We live longer, healthier lives. And we are rich. Okay, so that's my first point. The second point is, let's pretend that you didn't believe any of the nonsense that I just said, right? Those statistics are da-da-da, whatever to do, okay? Let's just pretend that, that that's where you are. Okay, so let's put our minds around. Let's pretend that, this for me, uh, pretend. Let's pretend that we are actually living in a terrible, terrible time. This is awful, right? What's happening now is just terrible. The things I said at the beginning are absolutely true. And in fact, I mean, there's reason for that. We're in a pandemic that's been one of the worst pandemics that, that is recorded. The economic impacts of this are going to be long range, I think. I don't know. But I'm guessing, they, and for some people, the economic impacts have been serious and severe already. Let's just say that this is just an absolutely terrible time. Okay, we agree on that? During the last 2,000 years, Christians are the ones who stand up in those exact times. Those times have come before. Those times have happened often. And Christians stand up. Christians are the people who open hospitals, who open schools, who educate people, who stay with the people who are suffering, who are kind of the, la- the ones sort of left behind as people flee a situation. And they minister and they say, we have to, got to be here to change the story. Christians are the ones who do that. So if we're in that time, it's time for us to do that. It's time for us to take our place amongst the Christians who have come before us. There's thousands of examples of this. I'm going to tell you one. Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich lived in the 1300s, beginning of 1400s. She lived during the Black Plague. Our, our, our coronavirus is something. The Black Plague is something, something, right? I mean, so. There's uh, estimates that in England where she lived, 40 to 60% of people died. Half of the people died. So, I mean, like, get your mind in some reality here where half of the people in Cedar Falls died. And that's a bad thing. And, and, and she's writing during this time. She's ministering during this time. 
after half the people have died, the tax base goes away. I mean, sorry to be so practical about it, but the tax base goes away. The government starts suffering because they can't support it anymore because there's no people paying taxes. And what does the government do? In their wisdom, they raised taxes and said, hey, these fewer people have to pay more. There was then what's called the Peasants' Revolt. The people from the, the land came and revolted. They came into the cities and they, and they stormed the, the parliament, the, whatever it was called at the time. They stormed it and they killed the, the government officials. <laughs> Funny story. And then the government officials killed them back. 1,500 peasants were executed to demonstrate that the government still had power. So that's happening she also lived during the period that was called the suppression of the Lollards, which, I mean, you can chuckle now. The Lollards, it's a religious organization. Why they picked that name, I have no idea. But the suppression of the Lollards was the beginnings of the Reformation, where people were starting to see that things in the Catholic Church needed to have a Reformation. And the Lollards started to talk about this, and the Catholic Church really put, put a short work to that. The Catholic Church really came down hard on that. The suppression of the Lollards was a hard thing for the church. So there was church factions. There was church warring with each other. And during this time, she's writing, and her writings are dark and brooding and angry. And Nope, they're not. They're not anything like that. They're joyful. Her writings are joyful. What she writes, her main book that's, that's kind of back now is called The Revelations of Divine Love. The revelations of divine love. She talks about God's infinite benevolence. She spoke of joy and compassion. She, she spoke optimistically. She wrote that she thought that Jesus had actually told her, which is awesome. Jesus said in real words to her, this is, I love that Jesus talks this way, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. How great is that? I mean, just the fact that he repeated that first thing twice, all shall be well, and all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. That's the story that was in her head. So my, my, my question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with this fact that Christians throughout time, during really bad times, have stood up? Where do we put it? How do we understand it? How does it work? My answer to this question is that they must have, they must have had a different story in their heads than what was happening around them, right? The story that was in their heads that they were processing everything through was not the story that was actually in their land, in their time, in their place. Their reality was something different than the thing, than the physical reality that they lived in. And bingo, a lot of minutes into my talk, we finally hit my point. Is it worth it anymore? Yes. Why? Because it is worth it when our faith can produce joy and peace and unity and love. It is worth it when our faith can pull us out of the story that we're in and bring us into another story, an eternal story. Our faith is worth it when that story that gets replaced can bring joy over anger, unity over factions, love over hate, peace over tension, hope over despair. 
And I believe that that is possible. And I believe that that's what Jesus came saying was possible and what he expected to happen. I believe that's the, the, the thing that should be happening in all of us. Uh, uh, another time I taught previously is like what I was asking, what's the sort of central story of the Bible? A really hard question, right? I mean, how, how are you? And so one of the central stories of the, of the Bible is resurrection. Resurrection. Why is resurrection a, a central story? One of the reasons that it's a central story is that it says that there is more to reality than materiality. There is more to actuality than just the things that you can see around you. There is another story that's not just the story of what's happening in your land. That's, that's one of the things that Jesus was just strongly proclaiming as he was resurrected. He was like, look, people, I'm here. Another story is of the real story. And this other story, this story of dissension and, and factions, that's a, just a different story. That's a story outside of the real story. That's a, a sideshow story, a parallel story. And it's not the story where we should be spending all of our time. The real story, the eternal story, is a story of redemption of, of things that are broken and a restoration of things that are lost and of resurrection of things that have died. It's a story of hope and a story of looking forward. A story of creation that can just hardly wait to get back to the resurrected Christ. So I, I was thinking as I was, as I was pre preparing this and thinking through how I think about these things. I was realizing that my three favorite verses over the last few years, and you, if you've been here, you've heard me say them a lot. But that's fine. I say them way more than you've heard them. So, My three favorite verses over, over these last years have been have been filled with this exact ingredient saying that there's a different story than the story that's around the person who's giving it. So the first one is David, King David. It sounds great, doesn't it? King David, well, what's wrong with his story? But he didn't get there by just living in the castle until he was the king. His road to the king was, was terrible. Like the current king decided he wanted to kill him a few times. David had to actually run and hide in the, in the caves and hide out from people. There were search parties looking for him. His life didn't, wasn't all that great. And that David, who's fearful for his life, writes this. Psalm 62. Truly my soul finds rest in God. Truly my soul finds rest in God. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? There's a different story. There's a different story. Why are you downcast? Truly my, my soul finds rest in God. And then there's Paul. You, you may know Paul. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. Paul's life also, if you know anything about it, was not easy. Paul's beaten nearly to death multiple times. In fact, I mean, when I say nearly to death, it's like people actually thought he was dead and walked away from him and said, okay, that's done. And then, and then he gets up and leaves. He's beaten. He's put in prison. He's, he's uh, poor. And he writes this, and this is a verse that I, I asked you to memorize before, and I'm going to ask you again. It's Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. 
tell your heart a different story. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, Paul's sentence structure does not sound simple. There's nothing. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And Paul also wrote this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Think about those things. What are you, what are you doing? Okay, so here's my close. I literally copied and pasted this close from uh, last October, one year ago. I, and I, because I still, I still am passionate that this is some, a message that we need. Three things for you to do. Dwell, dwell on passages like I just mentioned. Dwell on things like Psalm 62. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. Dwell on that. Say it to yourself over and over. Memorize it. Dwell on something like Paul saying, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. When I, when I go over this in the morning, I, I often will ask myself, what is my heart set on right now? What is my mind set on right now? What is it? What's distracting me? What's got me churning? What's got me riled? Where is my heart set? And then can I reset it to things that are above? Dwell on those things. Have them available to you. Number two is fast. Fast. Stop. That's just a Christian word for stop it. <laughs> Knock it off. Stop it. Fast from dissension, anger, sarcasm, your consumption of those things. Stop consuming that stuff so much because it's going to tell you a story and pretty soon your brain's going to believe that story and pretty soon you're going to be part of the authoring of that story. So stop it. Fast from that stuff. Look at it objectively, and then, and then if it's full, full of anger and discord and sarcasm, just stop it. And then finally set, or continue to set. Set your minds on things above. What does that mean to you? How can you pray and, and, and get yourself into a mindset and a heart set where you're set on things above, where you're looking at things through that kind of a story, where when input comes in, what happens to that input is it's like, it's played through that story instead of the story that's being told to you. Set your mind in a way that it's going to interpret reality through the bigger story. And you'd be able to, like Jesus said, I'm here because I think you should have joy. And I think your joy should be complete. I'm here because I think you should have hope. Set your mind in that kind of way. Since then, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above and set your minds on things above. Amen. Heavenly Father, your word challenges us. Your word excites us. I pray that we can be people who let your word uh, put into us a different story, an internal story, a bigger story, a story of resurrection.
a story of redemption, a story of hope, a story of love. And that we then eventually become people who are those things and who, who go through our lives interpreting the world through those lenses. I pray that that can then lead other people to, say, to look at us and say, man, that looks worth it. That looks like something that's good. I would like that. I would like to be able to live my life like that. And we become a light on a hill and a hope for the world. It's all in your name. Amen.